0: Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. It's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring. I'm pretty sure I also mispronounced roncando. I... This is my first time saying that sentence out loud, but it is raining and it is pouring. And by pouring, I mean wine into my glass. Welcome to another episode of Warning About History, where two trailblazing best friends tell the stories of women that you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have in a transatlantic accent. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. I, I was not either. I actually don't know what just happened. I truly like sometimes I get into an I'm like, what the fuck just is happening? It's like an out of body experience. Hmm. You know, do you, are you ever like such a jackass where it's like you leave your body and you're watching yourself do something stupid and you're like, no, mm-hmm. all right, <laughs> don't tell the person selling you your move, your movie ticket to also enjoy the show. <laughs> <laughs> damn it. God damn it, Emily. Again with this. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode. Um, Kelly, I don't know about your story, but mine is significantly less depressing. Although I think we could have a story about someone's fingernails getting pulled out and it's going to be less depressing than last week.
1: I'm probably going to like super nerd out over mine and everyone else is going to be like, Kelly, what the fuck are you even talking about? It's
0: psych based. Ooh. This is the first psychologist Kelly is covering since becoming a psychologist herself. I actually think that is true. This is a hot yes, yeah. like because really? it literally just happened, and the two women that you have covered were not psychologists. That's true. It's it's a very easy thing for me to track at this it point. Is. <laughs> All right. Well, before we dive into these badass bibs, we are drinking. Akiyoshi 2018 Cabernet Sauvignon from my mm. naked wine box. I'm still working my way through that fucking box, and I might be forever. I feel like this house could get torn to the ground. I'm gonna find another bottle in the rubble. Like, oh, I didn't know I bought so much. So, uh, this is by David Akiyoshi, and I, I picked it because it has a, a fish on it, mm. and I'm like, oh, it's raining. And it has been raining for 86 years what's like the real you thing it's been 89 years <laughs> no because that would make her like 100 She is
1: like close to 100 though yeah
0: maybe that maybe that was part of the point is that she's just insanely old it's been 89 years 84 it's been 84, 84 years. years i'm still finding bottles of this goddamn wine all right so This Cabernet Sauvignon is made from vineyards located in my two favorite Appalachians. There are, first of all, did not realize there are two Appalachians. Appalachians?
1: the Appalachian Mountains, it's a whole mountain range. No, I know,
0: but I always think of them as one unit. Like, I don't think of them as... I would
1: assume there's more than two.
0: Okay, well, first of all, how bougie to know that, and second of all, how bougie (laughs) to have two favorites the other ones are bullshit one star but these two four and a half stars
1: but this one 4.75
0: 4.75 although if you're looking for a truly serious lecture on mountains this is not the podcast (laughs) for you turn us off one lends an amusing personality and a sense of joy while the other enhances the union providing a depth Depth, character, structure, slash stability, and richness. It's not depth of character. It's a depth character. All right. Okay. That was a choice. Someone didn't proofread this. Or I'm an idiot. It could be both. As a blend, it is a match made in heaven and exclusively for angels to enjoy. Cheers, David Akiyoshi. Cheers, sir. I haven't even, we haven't even poured this wine. I feel like I'm totally out of it, but now you get that sweet ASMR pour. Glug, 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 get in my mug.
1: We're not drinking out of mugs.
0: No, but it rhymed. I know. <laughs> Why do you have to ruin the illusion? No one can see. I could see I'm drinking out of the the, oh shit, what's the super famous cup? That King Arthur uh, has. The Holy grill. The Holy grill. I'm like, it's not the Goblet of Fire. That's Harry Potter. <laughs> I could say I'm drinking out the Goblet of Fire and no one would know any better. But you have to ruin it for me. Can't let me have any fun. Nope. You has got piss on my parade like <sighs> this weather for the past Always. four fucking days. It, it feels like it's been raining constantly. I'm like, okay, when did the Cullens show up? Because the sun has not been out. Okay, it was out a little bit, but not enough for my taste. Anyway, Kelly, where are we cheersing to so I can shut the fuck up about the rain? The rain. God damn you! No mas lloviendo! I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Cheers to the end of the week. Cheers to the end of the fucking week. I'm so tired. Cheers. Cheers. I've been tired since like Tuesday. I think I've been tired. When did I start kindergarten?
1: For the last 84 (laughs) years. (laughs) It's been 84 years (laughs)
0: since I've had any energy. I mean, yeah. Any zest for life.
1: It's true. I'm just perpetually tired.
0: Mm. You know, this is really good. So it's a cab saw. It is dry, but it's also like, it has a sweetness to it. Mm. It's not like, I'm trying to think of the I'm trying to think of the word for it. It doesn't like coat your tongue like there's this initial sweetness that I really like instead of kind of that biting sourness that sometimes you get from capsovs. Hmm. Do you disagree, Kelly? Let's have a I lively don't.
1: debate. I, I actually really like it. Like yeah, I'm not always into reds, but I really
0: like this red. Bold of you to say as a redhead.
1: <laughs> sometimes I'm sometimes a redhead.
0: I'm into redheads. Seriously, at Kelly's wedding, part of my maid of honor speech was telling everyone how when I first met Kelly, she had like fiery orange hair and like bitchin' full eye mascara with like the little wings and everything. And immediately I'm like, she's way too cool to be my friend. But then we started talking about murder and a friendship was born.
1: Always. Always.
0: Murder and Alice in Wonderland. That's all you need to make a successful decade-long friendship. So, Kelly. It's valid. Who are you covering today? And are they a fiery redhead?
1: I do not believe so.
0: (laughs) Can (laughs) neither confirm nor deny. Now I'm
1: like, now I have to check. Um... Most of their images are in black and white, so.
0: Ooh, we could change it to maybe? whining about hair story. Oh, God. No. Or we just, like, make judgments about historical characters and their motivations based on their hair color.
1: Hmm. Or style or anything like that. The
0: ADs are going to get, or no, the BCs are going to get real fun. Mm-hmm. We're just going to make it up and create an entire persona around a human being based on their alleged hair color. Yeah.
1: Um, so I forgot to look up how to pronounce this person's name. It's either Lita or Letta. I'm gonna go with Lita because I don't know. I think that sounds better. Yeah. Um, but her full name is Lita
0: Stetter Hollingworth. Lita Stetter Hollingworth. I like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, she was originally just Lita Stetter, born May 25th. So her birthday's coming up, 1886. We're going back a little ways. Cool. Uh, she was born in Nebraska, the oldest of three girls. Um, sadly, she would lose her mother, um, when her mom was giving birth to the youngest child, and her father would just abandon the family after the mom died.
0: What a fucking gem! Right? He's just like, mm, I'm done. You know, you know what's funny is like sometimes you see these like toxic posts online where it's like women talking about like don't date a guy if he makes under this or don't date a guy if he's not you know like these these very arbitrary landmarks I'm like maybe just maybe just like make sure he's not going to abandon your children if you die
1: right like <laughs> they're his kids too like stand like, up
0: dude I think that's an appropriate line to cross a lot of yeah. this stuff is subjective. That, I think, is a boundary that we should all have and hold close to our hearts.
1: So Lita and her two sisters would be raised by their maternal grandparents until Lita was about 12 when their father, who had previously abandoned them, just decided to come back and be like, hey, I got remarried. You're moving with me to a a different city in Nebraska.
0: Okay, it wasn't that he left them. It's that he went out hunting for a wife. For like 10 years. Well, maybe maybe he wasn't making the certain amount on all those super toxic lists. Ugh. Maybe his car was not bought new. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he just kind of sucked.
1: Uh, yeah. So Lita would describe the the time after she moved in with her father and stepmother to be a fiery furnace due to her stepmother's temper. There was alcoholism problems in the house as well as... um emotional and physical abuse mainly from the stepmother
0: oh this is a Disney movie yeah okay so immediately when you said fiery furnace I was like wait is this Cinderella
1: (laughs) and we're not that
0: far off
1: um so Lita's escape was school she absolutely loved going to school and she was educated in a one-room schoolhouse because we're back in that era Um, so much fun but she would talk about later in life that it was an excellent education it was very individualized and she absolutely loved it
0: that's saying a lot because you have five grades in literally one room and they're right. lined up row by row by row like yeah. anyone uh, i'm i'm sure this extends beyond the midwest but anyone growing up in the midwest had the obligata- obli- obligatory obligatory one room schoolhouse field trip where you had to sit in the, sit in the desks right. and write on your little charcoal slab. And then the teacher had to call on you. I remember I got called on to answer a question. It was like what the Illinois state bird is. I still don't know because I'm so like traumatized. And when you answer, you have to stand up in front yeah. of everyone, which like, like I in was your in your seat.
1: S- you don't have to like walk up to the front, but it's still no. everyone turns and looks at you. Yeah.
0: I'm in second grade. This was my hell. And I, I'm just staring at this woman. I'm like, we've literally never learned this. I don't know. And she's like, if you don't know the answer, you say, I don't know, ma'am. And sit down. And I'm like, I don't know, ma'am. And I sat down and cried. Because <laughs> I was so devastated. It was a lot.
1: That, I I still hate being called on. Even when I know the answer. So I like being 100%. In second grade, Oh, I can't. Yeah, no.
0: Hundred percent.
1: Um, so Lita would actually go on to be able to attend high school, which was probably super rare for women in those days. Um, but she would absolutely excel in the classroom and discover a talent for and passion for writing. She had a lot of intelligence, wit, and humor, and this was made evident when she was hired to write for the Valentine Democrat, a local newspaper, when she was fifteen.
0: The Valentine Democrat, romantic and liberal, I yeah. Love it. Or, or was this at the time though, when Democrats? I don't know. Okay, I did not Google it because they did switch <laughs>
1: at some point. Yes, um, but yeah. So she's fifteen. She's writing a weekly column for her town newspaper. So that's pretty cool. God. Um, she would graduate at 16 and begin studying at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, probably to get away from her terrible family.
0: That's the only reason anyone goes to Nebraska to, to I mean, escape toxic she, she already lived in toxic Nebraska. Homes. Oh, well. She's
1: moving to a different city in Nebraska.
0: Good for her. She'll get out someday. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Nebraska.
1: So obviously, like I said, she was studying literature and writing, but as a a matter of practicality and a girl who knows her place in the world. Apparently she was like, I'm gonna just pick up a, a teaching certificate along with my other degree, because she knew that women were only being hired into like three professions at this time. That
0: is like, it's sad, but incredibly practical, right? It, it's kind of like at where we went to school as a creative writing major, I was required to have a non-artistic minor. Cause they're like, We don't want you to die in a box. We want you to have a degree that you can actually use in a career. So my minor was professional writing. And guess what I'm doing? All of the above. in a like non-writing field. I I I can kind of write for this. Well, I I write for this. I write for my current job, my last job. But yeah, that's not
1: really what your job technically is. Yeah. I mean, for the podcast it is, but for the rest of it, not really.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so during her time at university, she would be the literary editor of the Daily Nebraskan, the associate editor for the Sombrero.
0: I'm sorry, I the don't what? Know.
1: it was called the. I
0: didn't. Look I didn't know it. Nebraska had the
1: Sombrero. A
0: Hispanic population.
1: Um, and assist assistant editor of the senior book, which I'm assuming was like a yearbook.
0: Wait, was it the senior or the senior book? Senior. <laughs> there was
1: no um
0: <laughs> Tilde. tilde. I'm just, I'm imagining like this really beautiful thriving Hispanic community in Nebraska and they've got like all their own publications Why and not? they're like the best kept secret in Nebraska. Right.
1: So she's writing all this stuff. However, her series of sto- short stories were denied to be published because she was a woman. Dumb. Even though she's writing all this other shit. Dumb. During her time at school, she would also meet a man named Harry Hollingworth during her sophomore year. Um, they would fall madly in love. And would, by the time she graduated two years later, they would be engaged. He was a psychology major, and after graduation, he would move to New York to work on a graduate degree at Columbia, um, while she would graduate uh, Phi Beta Kappa, which is, I believe, a I never actually looked it up. I meant to, um, but I believe it's a writing fraternity. Or Okay. I'm going to look it up right now.
0: Phi Beta Kappa. We gonna snap ya.
1: So Phi Beta Kappa is the oldest academic honor society in the United States.
0: With our academic pros, suck at you hoes. And that is their theme song. She
1: graduated from Phi Beta Kappa with honors, um, receiving a Bachelor of Arts degree in writing as well as the state teaching certificate, which would qualify her to teach English and literature at the Nebraska public high schools.
0: Good for her. Right.
1: She didn't immediately follow her husband, probably, be, or not husband yet. Fiance, probably because they didn't know what was going on. He was still a graduate student. She had her own life to figure out. So she, That's actually
0: really progressive, and I'm right? loving that.
1: So she jumped right into teaching. She would originally start in DeWitt, Nebraska, which was her fiance, Harry's hometown. Maybe it was all like, well, if he comes home, then I don't have to move. Yeah.
0: <laughs> which is also <laughs> smart. Because moving? Fucking... Sucks. I
1: always joke with Justin that if we ever move, that we're just gonna like have an estate sale or like sell the house as is and not take any of our shit with us.
0: Oh my. Okay. Can I just say, Kelly, if you move, it's gonna suck. I might be on vacation yeah. that month.
1: I'm just gonna throw half of our. Because shit I out. did
0: help you move originally, mm-hmm. and before that, and I'm done. Yeah, because now there's fine. more stuff, and I can't deal with it. Well, you'll be on Pug Patrol. Oh my God, I can handle that. Yeah, yeah you, I'll just be, distracted. can I get a little hat that says yeah. like Pug Patrol?
1: I will make you a hat.
0: I, okay, you know, I love a little that. wine glass. I agree you can to can drink all wine of this. and wash the dogs. Yes, I'm just going to, it's just going to be my cheese and the pugs in my backyard. I'm going to be drinking wine around my fire pit and just be like, Pug Patrol. Exactly. What you going to do? What you going to do when pugs come for you? Pug Patrol, Pug Patrol. <laughs> You're going to get licked. Always Um, or they're going to shit in my in my house. Yeah, maybe both. (laughs) Navi was not happy that I came over because as we're like saying up the studio, she like took a shit in the middle of the room.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she she was like, it's raining and Emily's here. I am too stressed for this. This is entirely too too much.
0: This is entirely too much. Fuck the rain. Fuck this bitch. (laughs) Right. I Um, I still love her, though. uh,
1: She loves you. She's sleeping now. Um, so her first teaching position would be an assistant principal at a local high school, and her second teaching position would take her to the a town of McCook, McCook, there's too many C's in that,
0: Nebraska. Are you sure it's not McCock? It's McCook. McCook. There is
1: two O's, um, where she would just be a, a literature teacher for two years, Uh, After those two years, Harry was able to obtain an assistant professorship for himself at Barnard College, which meant he was now making enough money that he could bring his fiancée to New York to be with him. So he brought her to New York, and they would get married um, in December of that year. Um, And while she had absolutely flourished in her teaching positions, she wanted to be with Harry more, so she did move to New York as well. Yeah, Um, After her move, Lita very much tried to obtain work as a teacher because she she was very passionate about it. However, New York had a very dumb law at the time that stated married women
0: couldn't teach. That is actually... Not uncommon for this time. It's so
1: stupid though.
0: Actually, it, was, it wasn't It was just the social norm, but sometimes like you could not work if you were married yeah. and you especially could not teach if you got married. So teaching was something that women did while they were waiting for a guy to come up and right. like, like marry them. It's so gross. And actually, even when we covered the radium girls, a lot of those girls, they quit working yep. when they got married because that's what you did. Exactly. Which I'm just like, oh.
1: Yeah. So Lita would continue writing and would busy herself with like being a little homemaker. Yet she didn't feel fulfilled and she found herself bored, frustrated and began developing depression, which makes a lot of sense. Like if that's not where your passion is, if homemaking and stuff like that isn't where your passion is, like you're not going to like it. So um, She had a lot, she had a hard time bearing the fact that despite all of the schooling and training, like she had her bachelor's and stuff like that, she was unable to contribute to her family and she kind of just felt kind of like a waste. Aww. Um, She even tried to apply to graduate school during this, but again, was barred due to the gender discrimination that was very prevalent at the time. So she began to question uh, the female's role in society and what was expected of them and all this inequality of like being a woman. Yeah. So as a result, she really kind of switched career tracks um and began to be mo- much more um interested in education and sociology instead of like literature and writing. Um her husband really helped kind of turn her luck around because Harry was offered a position at Coca-Cola to do a study on caffeine.
0: Oh. And
1: he hired her. He hired his wife, Lita, as his research assistant. So not only was she able to, like, do things, she was getting paid.
0: That, okay. Can I just say, and maybe this will change, but I am totally on board with Henry. No. Because it seems hairy. like Harry. Shit. <laughs> you know what? I might
1: have said Henry at one point. It's Harry. Like,
0: I'm like three it's drinks in.
1: Harry Hollingsworth.
0: Oh, Little ho. <laughs> <laughs> Do that when I'm like. It was in the middle of a sip. Don't tell me what to do. No, but like he's he's being very supportive of like her having her own autonomy and having you know her own career and education. Like even when she decides to move with him, like all of this still feels like it's her choice rather than you know what someone else is forcing her to do, and that he's supporting her in this way.
1: Right. I feel like he's like I see you're depressed. I see your interest in this. Like why. I have this opportunity if you want it and you can make some money and and contribute. Um, so what's even greater is, yeah, I I think he must've been like super supportive because she obtained enough money for working with him to enroll in university. And she finally got accepted at Columbia university in 1911. And she would take courses in education and sociology. She would graduate with a master's degree in education um and would almost immediately get a job administering the Binet intelligence tests, which you still hear about, but they're not as widely used these
0: days. Wait, the intelligence tests? Binet intelligence test, Binet,
1: B I N E T. Oh, I thought
0: this was about pastries. No, that would be I so failed. So much better. Congratulations, Emily. Um,
1: and so she was working at a place that I definitely don't agree with the name with of, but it was what it was back then. It was called the Clearing House of Mental De- or for Mental Defectives.
0: Uh, this is okay. Yep. I'm sorry. You say the clearinghouse. I'm like, did this become Publishers Clearinghouse? Did they have to like pivot when not. we started caring about people with mental illness? Because right. this is fucked. So
1: they would often like pit these test scorers against one another to see who was best. And Lita often came out on top to the point where she became um, New York City's first civil service psychologist and would go on to work at Bellevue Hospital as chief of the psychological lab. So I think she was doing a lot of like
0: testing. Why does Bellevue sound so familiar? I think a lot of hospitals were called Bellevue. No,
1: I think Bellevue is exactly the one you're thinking of.
0: Is it the one that um, session nine... Oh, is based
1: off of. I have no idea what Session 9 even is.
0: It's a really good like kind of low-key psychological horror movie I really like. It. I'm not I'm not like a huge horror movie person because to me horror movies have strongly been like slasher or like, you know, gushy, nasty murder, but I do like a horror movie that's like a ghost story or like a psychological thriller. Like, Crimson Peak was super fucking good. Yeah.
1: Um. So Bellevue has a lot of different things, like, under its belt. Like, it's one of the oldest public hospitals in the United States. Mm. It's connected with Rikers. They send their prisoners there. Like, they have a ward for them specifically. It was the world's first hospital to have a catastrophe unit. Like... But I also think their mental health ward was not fantastic, if I remember correctly. So
0: what you're telling me is that place is 100% haunted, and Zach Bagans, the the hobbit ghost hunter, has probably been there to antagonize spirits. Right. Yeah, of patients who were abused. Great. Probably. Way to go, Zach.
1: So... Um... During this decade where she was doing all this stuff, uh, Lita was also fighting for women's suffrage and belonged to the progressive era group known as the Feminist Alliance. I actually couldn't find a ton on her specifically like working with the suffrage and the Women's Feminist Alliance, but she was doing that stuff. So my next two sections are breaking down like specifically her contributions to psychology because they kind of happened At the same time, but also kind of separately of one another. So I did it based on like the research she was doing, not time frame. Mm -hmm. So the first section we're going to talk about is women's psychology. So when she went to Columbia, Lita was working under a person, a guy named Edward Thorndike. That name might sound familiar. He was an incredibly famous psychologist who had some really fucked up views, which we're about to get into.
0: Oh, super fun. Drink every time you're horrified right. <laughs> unless he, you're driving her at work.
1: He he had some like great psychological insights and some of the things was. But it's a it's a symptom of the time as well. So he agreed to like supervise her as her because she was doing graduate school. And she was doing a dissertation on something they used to call functional periodicity, which this bullshit is the belief that women are psychologically impaired during menstruation. That the theory of functional periodicity is actually kind of why a lot of people back then didn't want to employ women and why there are like some things about like oh you don't want to be you know the the misconception of you don't want to be around a woman while she's on her period because they're insane (laughs) Emily's just like god damn it Kelly
0: oh my god actually that's okay it's really hard to sip wine like into the microphone and it hurts actually I have it like tipped up to my face and my eyes are burning a little so I'm gonna stop but I will continue the drinking game in my own fashion yes
1: um So I'm actually shocked that Edward Thorndike agreed to oversee Lita because he had those beliefs. And he was also a big supporter of, at the time, what was known as the variability hypothesis. Yeah,
0: yeah. Get your drinks I I was going to say, I'm immediately picking up my
1: glass. The variability hypothesis said that men exhibit a greater variation in both psychological and physical traits than women- meaning men occupy both the highest and the lowest ends on a range in any given trait. And women are destined to be in the middle and always be mediocre. Like, I'm like, okay, thank you for not saying we're like the worst, but also
0: really. So Kelly, how do you know when a blood vessel in your eye is pop? Because I am, I might be having a rage stroke right now. Yeah. Like, well, and and, uh, here's the thing, like, I think it's very easy for us to laugh at this in the year of our goddess, 2023. Yeah, But back then, first of all, it was taken very seriously. Second of all, this is still the kind of bullshit you hear today. This stuff has not gone anywhere. Right.
1: So that's what Edward Thorndike believed. And so the reason I'm so shocked that he accepted Lita is because Lita was like, my dissertation is going to be to prove that that's not right.
0: You know what, though? And he
1: still... I, I feel like he was one of those big dick guys that's probably like, yeah, sure. Prove me wrong.
0: Because how, how it would it would incredibly bolster his point of view if like, hey, I'm supporting this woman who's actively trying to prove me wrong. And, and guess she what? Failed. She can't because I'm right. Right. Dr. Thorndick. Yeah. that That's his new name. I will call him by nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, she she believed that while there were extremes, that extremes were not based on quote unquote male genetic superiority, but instead extremes were based on cultural, like cultural stigmas and things like that. She believed huh. Yeah, right. Huh. She believed that rather than innate differences, societal roles accounted for sex differences in the number of institutionalized males and females at places such as the clearinghouse for mental defectives. Huh. Right?
0: What a- fascinating idea right I mean even even um j- just the whole idea of like okay say you're in a mental health institution it was a lot easier to send women there Oh yeah, it was based- anyone could like throw a woman in a mental institution for the rest of her life Oh yeah, With husbands no
1: did that all the time. Husbands
0: father's brothers. Yes, I so I just got uh done reading Kate Moore's uh The Woman They Could Not Silence and it's all about that and it is it's fascinating. It is also horrifying. It is horrific. It's so frustrating and it's also still frighteningly relevant today like we still call women crazy or unhinged or use their periods as an excuse for you know oh a woman can't be present every time she gets a period she's gonna bomb scotland it's right. like what, ha, let's have talk, you let's ever talk known about have you ever known a person who menstruates <laughs> if anything the fact that i can bleed for 7 days and not die should make me even stronger <laughs> Let's talk about that. Though. Yeah, let's talk about that. So,
1: the beginning of her dissertation would address um the the previously, quote unquote, supported concept that women's mental incapacity were mentally incapacitated during their menstrual months. She would start her study by recording the results of both women and men's performances on a variety of different tests such as cognitive motor tasks and stuff like that. Over a three month period, so she's not like "I'm just going to do it for like two weeks, one when they're on it, one when they're not no she's right. like, "I'm going to like get this data um, during that initial test of those three months, no empirical evidence was found of decreased performance on par with the menstrual cycle, or really at all so um she yes yeah, she she specifically said quote." Her data did not reveal a periodic mental or motor inefficiency in normal women. So that was the beginning of her dissertation is proving that wrong. Okay. She would then go on to challenge the widely accepted belief that intelligence is inherited and that women were intellectually inferior. She believed that women did not reach positions of prominence due to the societal norms, not their intelligence.
0: Like the fact that no one will let them be educated. Right. Or work if they're married.
1: Right. So she literally called these hypotheses armchair dogma, and she characterized all the literature based on it as the literature of opinion. She's like, this isn't actually scientifically proven. This is just people like saying it is.
0: I love that she is employing the scientific method yep. to blast the patriarchy. According to the scientific method, the patriarchy is bullshit. Right. Yeah. So she
1: she says, I am going to, you know, state literature of fact. And she talks about, she said, this is in one of her articles wrote that was titled, Variability as Related to Sex Difference in Achievement, a Critique. Quote, undoubtedly one of the most difficult and fundamental problems that today confront thinking women is how to secure for themselves a chance to vary from the mode of their sex and at the same time to procreate in a social order that has been built up on the assumption that there are little or no variations in tastes, interests, and abilities within the female sex. So basically she's like, everyone just assumes that all women are the same, want the same things. And are the same person, essentially. And she's like, that's not okay. So in order to further this research, she performed an experiment in which she used infants that had not yet been influenced by the environmental conditions that are going to account for variability differences in adults. Basically, she's going to give intelligence tests and stuff to adults and infants, because infants haven't been raised in our society yet and won't have all those societal norms. They're like a delightful blank slate. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so men, she found that men had a, uh, or sorry. Yeah. Adult men had a wide range of professions from which to choose from so that they would be able to improve the talents that they possessed. Women on the other hand, had been confined mostly to only one profession prior to more recently when they had been able to be teaching. But she said mostly like most women were housekeepers. Right. Um, and so they didn't have a chance to prove their intelligence. Thus their natural variability would be impaired because they're not getting those opportunities that men are getting to improve their various skills
0: wow okay like okay so I was I was talking to someone the other day and saying that I had read an article on like motivation and how it's uh you know it's it's like a wave it goes up and it goes down it goes up and it goes down and the person I was telling this to just goes wow they had to do a study to figure that out and that's how I feel about this where it's like wow we had to figure out that denying women education career opportunities and force encouraging, if not forcing them to just be wives and mothers and not to pursue any intellectual pursuits has an effect on this. Huh? It's right. so crazy, but, but you do, you do because otherwise there are people who just say things like, um, like she was talking about at the beginning, like this armchair dogma of like, well, no, no, no. It's that way because women are just less. Women just aren't as smart. Women just aren't as mathematically inclined.
1: Right. Or even physically. Like, that was the other part of of this variability that, like, oh, men are also more physically fit. And it's like, yeah, of course, if you keep a woman at home, like, and all she gets to do is clean.
0: Yeah. Actually, in in, uh, Hallie Shapley's book, Strong Like Her, she talks about how a lot of women's clothing was designed to limit movement. Like, shoes were too small. They weren't good for running because... And women, when they were men's or when people were menstruating, they were encouraged to not move. Like right. you don't move, you, you don't go anywhere, you, you don't do anything and all these restrictions. And then on the other side of that, well, we like to describe male males as more physically fit. Right. And it's like, but there are physical attributes that we attribute to women more so like grace and, you know, balance and things right. like that. But those just aren't the things that we value. Yeah. There's a lot. Sorry. I could go on for a million years. I'm pretty
1: sure we both could. Yes. And so yeah, it's it's a thing. Um, so she would go on to look, like I said, look at newborns and look at um one thousand consecutively born males and a thousand consecutively born females. Um, and particularly in this study, they were looking at um the variability of like physical features. So they did a bunch of like anatomical measurements and all of this stuff. And they found, yes, male infants generally are slightly bigger than females, but there are actually no differences in variability between the sexes other than that. Um, And so she said, quote, for the first time, a serious crack has appeared in the armor of the variability hypothesis. And so her even just starting this research, and I don't think she got as far as she wanted, but again, she was just writing her dissertation because from the things I read, it sounded like she wanted to do more on, like, the intelligence and stuff, but she didn't have the time or the money to necessarily right. do so. So she started it and, yeah, made that crack appear so then that the rest of the theory could be proven wrong. And she she believes that she's responsible for changing uh, Thorndick's revised beliefs because he did. He eventually came around and was like, okay, um, Nurture is more important than nature. Like, okay. he eventually kind of turned around and was like, okay, maybe this
0: validation hypothesis is incorrect. Can, can I say, though, that is huge. Yeah. Because to be confronted with data that challenges your beliefs, to consider the data and to actually change your thoughts on something right. is so difficult. And most people will not do it. This is why we still have flat earthers. This is why we still have like scamdemic people because they have settled into this like comfort zone of none of this is real and they will not leave. It does not matter what you say or the graphs or the science. So the fact that he was able to consider the data and be like, oh, shit, maybe I was wrong. He gets to be Thorndike again. Right. He, he gets his name back.
1: <laughs> so he she obviously completed her graduate studies under him, received her Ph.D. in 1916, and he offered her a position to teach at Columbia Teachers College and was like, hey, come teach like psychology and stuff. And she accepted it, and she would actually be there for the rest of her teaching career. But she would not only do that. <laughs> She's like, eh, I'm going to keep doing other stuff. She would actually still uh, work at Bellevue at least one day a week as well as doing other things. So her other major research came in the department of intelligence testing, mental defects and exceptional children. Remember she had worked with children doing intelligence testing. Um all I can think of is mental de- defects, but at the clearinghouse, the publisher's yeah, she, she, clearinghouse. She worked in
0: <laughs> <at> the publisher's <laughs> clearinghouse. God damn it. Um the Publishers Clearinghouse by no way endorses the abuse no. and institutionalization of individuals with mental illness. No, yeah, the 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 asylum. Yes, I think we can call it.
1: Yeah, I'm okay with that. Um, so at this time in the in the late 1880s, um, or the 1900s, um, Lewis Terman is another famous psychologist, and him and his associates during this time were really, really big in, in implementing intelligence testing and ability grouping into like public schools and it's I have so many like thoughts and judgments about this because there led to so many problems.
0: I was gonna say
1: at best, soups problematic. I mean we don't do it anymore. Right. There's reasons for that. But yeah, by the nineteen thirties it was common practice to do intelligence testing in schools. So this guy, Terman, believed that intelligence testing was crucial to identify gifted individuals so that they would receive special attention and be helped to reach their full potential to become strong members of society. But then it's like you're leaving the like majority of children behind.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, no child left behind. Right. He also believed that democracy would benefit from differentiating between educational experience of those of gifted individuals and, and educational of, of those experiences of non-gifted individuals. He would also... Again, he would also believe that um, school curriculum should be changed to meet the needs of gifted children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Okay, here's the thing: I'm all for giving children yeah, like having track- advanced opportunities. Um, but this is feeling very much like it, instead of offering multiple opportunities, it's like no, 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 no. We need to prioritize the children that we deem are gifted based on this very narrow criteria and everyone else can just go fuck themselves. Yeah. And that so that's a problem.
1: Right. So Lita obviously had a lot to say about Terman's theories. Like, mm. yeah. <laughs> so her next set of work was, um, she was an active participant in developing educational strategies concerning the de- developmental of gifted students, but in a much more like concrete way, much more similar to what we have today where you're not changing the entire curriculum for the gifted students. There's a gifted track and a non-gifted, like they're separate. So you're not like leaving everyone else in the dust. Right.
0: And let's also put some quotes around gifted because like I, I knew students in in high school who would be considered gifted. I was not one of them. It doesn't mean I'm stupid. It doesn't mean I can't succeed. It's just like, Hey, they weren't testing on it's true crime, yeah. okay? <laughs>
1: yeah. So what I find really interesting is Lita and Terman were doing the work at like almost like parallel times, like at the same time. They never met one another, but apparently they respected each other immensely. Because they're both like kind of working toward the same goal. Not really, but at the same time kind of
0: They're they're working in the same field and they have very different ideas of what the solution is. Right.
1: So the And the main point they disagreed on, because they, they agreed on a lot of the other things, like, yes, gifted children should, you know, maybe have different learning opportunities and stuff like that. But the main point they disagreed on was that Terman believed that intelligence was inherited and focused only on defining and describing it as an inherited trait, whereas Lita was like, mm, like, maybe it's a little bit of inheritance, but you can, like, there's also a lot of nurture that goes into it. There's a lot of environmental and educational factors that can either increase or decrease someone's intellectual potential.
0: Well, okay. Think about it this way. And I'm not saying reading is a definitive measure for intelligence because it absolutely is not because reading is a skill. It is something that you have to learn and you have to practice and say, we have two children. One is taught to read. The other is not. Does it mean the one who was not taught to read is not as intelligent? That right. kid could be a fucking genius. Right. Oh, but they don't know how to read. Like, it I, doesn't matter. I, I think that's interesting, though. Like, we right. we really can get in trouble when we're measuring on skills versus because I feel like intelligence is so much bigger than like your ability to do math or your ability to read. And yeah, some kids might have a higher acumen. But the, the second you start thinking in that black and white where it's like, no, no, no this kid's going to succeed because their parents are smart and this kid can go fuck themselves. Right. You are in so much trouble. Right. And you're ignoring all the societal factors. Yeah. And there are many. Yeah. Don't get me into systemic racism. So
1: like- <laughs> So Lita got involved in this and interested in this because when she was administering the Binet intelligence tests um, with the mentally defective, which I hate that term, but that's what it was yeah. known as back
0: then. Individuals um, with mental illness or uh, like delays or developmental problems.
1: Well, what Lita found women. out, yeah, well, I was to say, what Lita found out was that a lot of children that she worked with that were quote unquote mentally defective were actually of normal intelligence and it was a lot of like they were basically suffering from like adjustment disorders they weren't actually mentally quote unquote mentally defective they weren't they they were just not properly trained at home yeah it was like kids that weren't taught to read because their parents were never
0: home right
1: it's different than having the intellectual capacity to read or to do things,
0: and you know what's so sad about that is that's incredibly classist, right? Because oh, okay, think about it. You have you have a set of parents. Um, certain forms of birth control were available if you were wealthy enough or of a certain exactly. station for, for people in the lower social classes, it was not. So you have a bunch of kids that you cannot afford. So you're working all the time. And then the kids, once they're old enough, they have to work. So school is not a priority. It's hard to parent when you and your children are working all the time. Like the, it's so deeply seated, the classism. And then when you compound that with sexism and racism, it gets really bad. And so the idea that, yeah, we would measure these children's intelligence let alone worth on such narrow scales is really horrifying right and it's really sad because these are kids who just need extra support
1: right exactly so um from this discovery she began to focus more on this on the population of children that were saying you know that people were saying were mentally defective but really they just had adjustment problems or other problems that wasn't intelligent based and she would go on to pro- pub- publish several books um on specifically that topic one of which that was called just plainly the psychology of the adolescent which would be which would outpace the current textbook for uh adolescent psychology for the next 20 years like oh so she was like the, she was the person they were teaching in school from like 1928 to the 1950s almost
0: so she was essentially 20 years ahead of her time right Oh, my God. Here's the crazy thing. Like, what she's saying feels so obvious to us. But for for the time, it was decades ahead.
1: Right. So it wasn't until about the 1920s-ish that she began working earnestly with gifted children. And she's actually the one that is known for coining the term gifted. I know you're not... Super on par with it, but it's probably better than what they were calling it back then. Well,
0: I don't like how they're using it and how they're categorizing children, because when they're saying gifted, it's to the detriment of a bunch of other children who are considered not gifted for very arbitrary and bullshit reasons. Exactly.
1: So she's known for coining the term gifted, even though she began a lot of her work with what people called the mentally defective, and she actually became came to believe that most people are merely of average intelligence and that those with mental illnesses merely suffer from problems pertaining to maladjustment not
0: necessarily intelligence. Well, and also think of all the times in your childhood where you were you were that kid. You were right. struggling, you were not doing well, and it's not because you were not intelligent, it wasn't because there was something inherently wrong with you you were just you know it's like you were struggling with mental illness you were struggling with issues at home you were just going through that your parents were never home and they could help you yeah you were going through that asshole phase like we all are there right we've all been there some of us are still there
1: (laughs) right so Lita believed that giftedness comes from educational and environmental factors and believed that there were certain ways to nurture and educate children to attain that um she wrote a book literally titled gifted children which describes the results of a study that she did in order to quantify family backgrounds psychological like problems temperament social norms and all these other things of children to see kind of like maybe where different children land on the spectrum depending on their like family it um also included her attempt to create a curriculum that would benefit um seven to nine-year-olds with IQs over 155.
0: That's Mensa level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: So she was basically trying to create Mensa, like, well, it, or like a program for kids that have a high intelligence.
0: Right, and actually, th- this I, I feel like, I, I'm sorry I keep chiming in. I just have no, a lot fine. of thoughts and feelings about this, but I, I used to work with a kid who was in like baby Mensa. Because yeah. their IQ was over 140, right. I think there was a problem with that too. But like intellectually, incredibly intelligent, incredibly inquisitive, right? You know, really thought outside the box. All this stuff socially, exactly. Had to literally take a class on how to say please and thank you. So also when we're talking about intelligence, how are we measuring it? Are right. we measuring this sense of like, oh, being good at math and science? Or are we measuring emotional intelligence? Because there's IQ, intellectual quotient, and then there's EQ, emotional quotient. And they are different and they can coexist, but some people like one bucket's filled up more than the other. So again, right. this whole idea of like who is and is not intelligent is very Arbitrary.
1: Yes, we're not done with this yet. That kid
0: would fuck you up in Monopoly, though. I'm just going to say this now. No one played Monopoly as ruthlessly as this child. Right.
1: I think you'll find the next part really interesting. So, the last book that Lita would write, which we're not near her death, we have a lot more to go, but she published a book called uh, Children Above 180 IQ in 1942, which would actually end up being completed by her husband uh, after her death. But she would observe how many children with really high IQs often had yeah, social and adjustment problems that seemed to arise from a lack of intellectual stimulation and general parent- parental neglect, because she found that parents of really smart children tended to be like, oh, they can raise themselves. They're smart enough to do this.
0: That's super interesting. So
1: she she found that the proper resources and educational opportunities for both the parent and the child were almost non-existent. So, yeah, that there, there was a common, like, stigma that the more intelligent they were as a child, the more they could take care of themselves and the less parental, like, guidance that they needed. So, therefore, they ended up with a lot of maladjusted or, like you said, a kid yeah. that didn't know how to say please and thank you or act in social situations. Right. Because the parents were like, oh, he's super smart. I don't need to do
0: anything. That is super interesting because it also not makes that's not me not saying
1: that that kid. No, had no, that. no. They but were they I were on totally the spectrum. That was a totally it. separate
0: thing. Um, but that, that's really interesting because it makes me think of two, the children who have to grow up very Mm -hmm. quickly because maybe their home environment is not terribly well adjusted and a lot of responsibility falls on them. They become incredibly independent very quickly because that's what they have to do to survive. And then later on in life, they're They're kind of coming, well, and they're coming to terms with that. And the parents are like, well, you were fine. You seemed fine. You didn't need, you know, it's like, well actually they did need you they just didn't get you so they didn't get to need you right like they didn't get to have you so they had to adjust to that like we're incredibly right. adaptable as people that's super interesting
1: so uh lita would actually devise a method of working with these children with high iqs that stressed the importance of maintaining and keeping contact with them every day like whether it was one of the researchers or the parent like someone yeah having that social stimulation every day Um, And that they needed to be identified early so that they wouldn't be kept isolated from other children and peers. That basically, like, they need that social support to be well-adjusted.
0: And that's something we still have a hard time prioritizing.
1: So her first study of this kind of like figuring out what works well from them and like what maybe like what their needs aren't being met with like the standard education at the time and stuff like that, like where she could help. She used a group of 50 children between the ages of 70 and nine, all with IQs over one fifty-five. 55. So all, wait, did you all, say
0: 70 and nine,
1: seven and nine. Okay. I'm like between, I think you stopping a child at a certain point. Um, <laughs> so these are all like the Mensa level kids, one fifty-five yeah. and above um and this first study was over the course of 3 years so we went from 3 months with the adults to 3 years with the children um they changed so much exactly. so quickly and this initial study had two goals the first one was to gain a better understanding of basically all aspects of these kids lives as as much as possible um and including like background family life circumstances like everything Um, the second goal is to gain insight on what the best curriculum for these really highly intelligent children would be, um... She would go on to publish the study, and she would actually continue to stay in contact with most of the children long after the study was gone. Just because I'm like, yeah, you kind of gain a bond with people yeah. after. So
0: That's def- actually really beautiful.
1: Right. During the 18 years that followed, that she would continue like keeping in track with these children before she passed, she would add information about spouses and offspring and stuff like that. like Stuff that the original um, participants would volunteer and add them to the results and kind of see where, where it went. Um which I think is super super interesting. You know, like super super interesting. So she would fo- she would do another study later. Um this was more about like children with educational problems in general. So whether they were gifted or not and she actually paid particular study particular interest in this study to make sure that it was a racially mixed group. Like she kept it seven to nine year olds, kind of that like yeah. developmental age, but she was like, no, I want to make sure like I'm, cause she's still in New York. So she's like, I want to make sure that the racial mix matches the actual population of New York. I'm not just only doing white children. And that's
0: huge yes. because when you think about it, like, like think about some of the biggest studies that you've ever heard of, like the donut experiment, the Stanford prison, like what is the makeup like by gender and ethnicity of those of those subjects right it's usually pretty monochromatic and binary right just saying so they
1: used a place called the spire school s-p-e-y-e-r um for this study it was modeled after a typical new york public school and would eventually become known as known as lita lita hollingsworth school for bright children which is really interesting for bright children um and she would receive a great deal of public attention uh attention um she based the curriculum um around the evolution of common things is what she called it um and as a result this curriculum consisted of learning about things as food clothing shelter transportation tools timekeeping communication like
0: literally like the necessities of what you need to know oh so the things that we complain that public schools didn't teach us today like how to balance a checkbook or do my taxes right So the
1: children would make work units and they would like do the material for each student. The model of learning would prove to be super beneficial, um, particularly for gifted youth, but for everyone, because basically it would introduce concepts and then move on to the advanced subjects. Basically, you're literally like, okay, here's the foundation for everything else you're going to learn.
0: Yeah. Um, Because being able to recite the Pythagorean theorem isn't going to help me use the bus navigate the job market, do my taxes, understand how to buy a house, like, things that are seen as just basic. Right. So
1: for her final study on gifted children prior to her death, um, and this was another one that would be published after her death, she sought out kids that were super intelligent. She sought out kids with IQs of 180 or higher. Do such... Children exist. Yep. And the reason she did it is because she, when she was doing the Binet test way back in 1916, um, she had witnessed a child score 187. She was able to find 12 children total.
0: Um, (laughs) It's going to be a pretty small pool. Yeah,
1: exactly. With similar capabilities and would study them for about 23, or no, no, not 23 years. It was 23 years after 1916 she was like, I'm going to find these children and do as in-depth of a study as I can. Because, yeah, that's a very limited pool. But also, the percentage of the population is also very limited. So, your, your scores are still probably going to be pretty, yeah. <laughs> pretty okay. Um, so, she was fully aware that she would never live long enough to see the children reach adulthood. She knew that. Which is sad. Um, but she meticulously attempted to build a framework for future research, so that basically she could start it, and then someone else could follow it. Which I'm like, that's that's okay. That's okay. So
0: sad. The the fact that she's like conducting her scientific research and building in a contingency, an inevitable contingency that yeah. she is going to die before the research can be complete, is really admirable, but also incredibly depressing. Yeah.
1: So she she said that of the of these kids that test above one eighty on the at the time it was the Stanford Binet uh, intelligence test, um, she said quote they are characterized by a strong desire for personal privacy they seldom volunteer information about themselves they do not like having attention being called to them them or their families. Like, so she's like, this is kind of what we know. It's not going to be easy to do a study with these yeah, kids. Yeah, they're they're
0: incredibly reserved and closed off.
1: Right. So she was able to kind of, like, get to know the kids, work past these concerns, and to conduct as much research as she could before she passed. Um, basically maintaining as much, like, she was like, I'll maintain the strictest privacy possible. Um, and so she laid the foundations for the future research with these extreme, like, these extremely high intelligence children. Yeah. Uh, the results of the study uh, would suggest that for exceptionally gifted children or exceptionally intelligent children, um, they suffer from a lot of adjustment problems, mainly due to two factors. One, inept treatment by adults, again, kind of that you're smart enough to raise yourself mentality. Yeah. And also a lack of intellectual challenge. So... A lot of times they would see these kids maybe not go to college or drop out of school or stuff like that because they were bored.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So the main thing about all of these studies, all three of them, is during that time there were kind of these myths and these societal expectations that exceptional children, gifted children, intelligent children, these 155 IQs and higher were fragile or clumsy or eccentric or something. And all three of these studies kind of showed that that's not true. Yes, they may be maladjusted, but it's not necessarily their fault.
0: It's like, yes, you may have a Sheldon, but you could have not had a Sheldon. Right. You know, where where it's like just because a child has a high IQ doesn't mean that they're going to automatically be maladjusted socially or that that should be the expectation well as long as they're good at math i don't have to like teach them social skills exactly because again it's the it's the priority or the lack thereof that we put on these different areas of of knowledge and intelligence like eq versus iq
1: been talking for like an hour, so I'm gonna try and wrap this. Shit, up.
0: I'm so sorry. No, okay, this is mainly
1: me. This is so, so fascinating, though. I know, and like, <laughs> I'm I love... not the only one that's well, like super fascinating. Well, and like, this. especially talking
0: about kids, because like again, I ha- I have not studied kids in like a psychological perspective, but I've worked with so many fucking kids that like a lot of this, I'm like, oh my god, I totally know what you're talking about from real real world mm-hmm. experience. So
1: obviously. Lita worked a lot with gifted individuals. She was the first book person to write a comprehensive book on them. She taught college courses about them. She did more than 30 studies. I only mentioned three. She did more than 30. She also developed child-centered therapy and trained Carl Rogers, who's kind of known as almost like the father of child-centered therapy. So that's kind of interesting. I actually didn't know that because I know who Carl Rogers is. You... Guys might not, but he's, yeah, a big name in child psychology. And so the fact that she kind of like was the one that actually developed it and then like trained him is
0: kind of insane to me. I love that you are gaining insights on your field of study, the field of study that you just got your master's in just from doing this podcast. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thanks. I'm Um, so proud of you and your high intelligence and your high EQ. Right. Right. Um, so, hold on. Did your notes jump around? Jump. Yeah, they kind of did.
1: Jump. So (laughs) Lita was really well known during her life for her work with gifted children. And even today, she, that's probably what she's best known for. But so in addition to kind of her dissertation with women and that like kind of proving like women aren't crazy when they menstruate. And there's really not a big physical difference between. She did a lot more for women and feminism and psychology than I than I talked about. And I put it kind of at the end because it wasn't necessarily related to that first bit. But I want to I want to talk about it because a lot of people don't talk about it even in the psycho, psycho the
0: Astronom- psychological nom- world.
1: <laughs> so she would go on to write six articles on the psychological factors relating to the social status of women. All based on assumptions at the time that inherently greater variability in males existed, which she had already proved wrong. So she was kind of like writing these articles to be like, "Guys, I already proved this wrong." Eh, can you know, you, can
0: you stop with this baseless bullshit? I already proved that the patriarchy is crap,
1: right? And yeah, why? Why she while she pivoted like toward children, she came back to the subject of women. She never really abandoned it. And like I said, she she was working for suffragists and all of that stuff. So she planned to originally write a work entitled Mrs. Pilgrim's Progress, but died before she completed it, which is really, really sad. Aww. Um but she um established a group in nineteen twelve of twenty four highly educated women known as the Heterodoxy Club, which was um some basically the the 24 women were some of the era's most influential activists it included um a bunch of women we have not talked about but i have i'm going i'm going to name them we'll hopefully talk about them but like crystal eastman henrietta rodman rose pastor stokes and but like it was basically because they were all really intellectual women so it was women that were very like suffragists and other like leading ladies of their time not actor-wise, but, like, in their field. Yeah, absolutely. The literal only criteria to be part of this group was that you had to hold unorthodox opinions, which at the time probably wasn't super hard.
0: Hey, does anyone else think that, like, we should be allowed to wear pants? Bitch, you're in. Get in here. Also, right. this is her doing whining about her story exactly. Before whining about her story. she's like, who are the women that you should know but don't know about? right.
1: Um, as we don't like to shy away from warts.
0: Are we going to um, are we gonna talk about eugenics? We
1: are. Damn it. Because, but okay. Cause here's the thing. So if you actually like read a biography about her or like biographics that are like way more in depth than mine are, even though mine was still pretty in depth, like I said, I've been talking for like an hour, but yeah, her biographies are a little bit complicated because yeah, there there is some eugenic beliefs. They're not like wholehearted, but that was a big thing in the Americas at the time. It permeated science and society and even branches of feminism. And so, even though she worked with these really inche- intelligent children, and she worked on the other side too, she went she worked with the quote unquote mental defective children. Yeah, some of those eugenic beliefs still permeated some of her own beliefs, not as strongly as other people. And she really didn't deny the importance of heredity and like that, maybe people that aren't as smart shouldn't have kids. She, she never said, like, the extreme eugenics position right. of, like, hey, we need to get rid of everyone that isn't, like, smart, but she was like, yeah, maybe, it's, which is still not fantastic. It's
0: one thing to study and acknowledge the roles that genetics play, but it's another thing to be like, oh, these people are not allowed to reproduce because right. they don't create the, the Ubermensch and, or whatever, and we, we've talked about this before, the suffrage movement, and yeah. the United States scientific community in general was very racist. Right. And the Nazis got a lot of eugenics ideas from us, including for the gas chamber.
1: Yeah. I'm about to say two quotes that I didn't even like writing, but I'm going to say it anyways, just to kind of like let you know where her mind was at. So one of them was mediocre or dull parents can no more produce a brilliant child than a tomato plant can produce a plum, which is true. And not like a tomato plant can't produce a plum. I'm 90% sure that mediocre or dull parents can still have gifted and intelligent children.
0: hundred percent. Well, and then also how are we defining mediocre or dull? What? They didn't have impressive careers and they worked all the time. Um, We don't know who Einstein's parents were.
1: But, right, her her biographer pointed out, this is a second quote, that, quote, though she fought for the individual women's rights to choose whether or not to become pregnant, Lita, in fact, favored involuntary sterilization for those who are mentally deficient. Oh! That, that is the biggest one that I am like, no! That is so wrong. Like, you worked with these kids, you helped them get better lives, and you're still like, no, you shouldn't have children. Oh,
0: Lita, yeah. honey.
1: But... I didn't want to leave that out because I'm like, no, this is really important. Like, it's funny because she talks about like all these societal beliefs for women and then she goes and like proves them wrong. But then she's still like, no, I'm going to follow the societal beliefs of eugenics. I'm like,
0: Lita, come on. Well, and I
1: think oh, Dory, you're wet. Oh- <laughs> I'm sorry. My dog it's been raining, as Emily's mentioned, multiple times, and my dog is sitting under my chair and I put I have my legs crossed and I put my foot down and it touched a very wet dog. I didn't actually
0: know she was under there. Very startling. Because she was hanging out by me for a minute. Oh, I can No, like, and smell here's the her. thing. I'm so glad that you included that because there seems to be this idea that to criticize prominent figures especially in American history like our founding fathers for example and like the fact that they were slaveholders and this and that and like raped their slave or enslaved people excuse me you know how it's like oh but the drill is because hey I'm not saying like this doesn't take away their accomplishments but is disingenuous and simply like from a historical standpoint, unfair and inaccurate to not acknowledge right. these parts of these people. Right. And we can blame it on society. We can blame it on this. We can blame it on that. The fact of the matter is many of our founding fathers had enslaved people right. and sexually assaulted them because you can't have, like, yeah. but you know, it's like, I think it's a much more important lesson to understand that these things can all exist together. Right. You know, it's like, oh, Bill Cosby, great actor, but he's a sexual predator. Those he can be both. Tom Cruise, like blockbuster actor. Also an abuser and a like right a Scientologist pawn it, you know like it's, it's called a
1: dialectic these there yes. are two things that seemingly shouldn't be able to be true at the same time but are it's yes. known as a dialectic that's literally what I do every day
0: yeah it's like do I love watching Alec Baldwin in 30 Rock yes Is he kind of a crappy human being? Yes. Yes. And a bad father? Yes. Like all of these things can exist. And I think it's a more important lesson for us to understand that and to be able to evaluate someone as a whole versus they're either good or they're bad. Right. And that's why I really like that we do talk about when the women we cover fail. Or when right. they, when they do or have,
1: maybe, maybe they succeed for the wrong cause
0: or yeah. Or when they have ideas that's or, or beliefs where it's like, that is inhumane. Right. And I'm, I'm glad we do that. I'm glad we do that because we're, as much as we love the women that we cover and the, as much as we're trying to like build them up and get their stories out there, we're not trying to canonize them. Right. Like. They're, they're not beyond fault. They're not beyond wrongdoing. They are, they are people.
1: All right, let's wrap this up.
0: Okay, shit. Sorry, go ahead. So
1: Lita would die on November 27th, 1939 at only the age of 53 from abdominal cancer. She would die at Columbia University, which is interesting to me because I'm like, oh, that's where you went to school. Like, I'm like, God, I, I wouldn't want to medically be brought to where I went to school. But I guess Columbia is a little different. I
0: mean, Edith Grand Mayo died where she taught all the nurses. That's true. That, that's how she knew which ones to pick. Like, she's like not, nope, you, not you. Not you. <laughs> I've seen you try to put an IV in someone. Get the fuck away from me. Exactly.
1: <laughs> um, so Lita is known for her dedication to her research participants. She would stress the importance of direct contact, even when a lot of the her peers at the time were like, no She famously said, quote, the adding machine has tremendous advantages over the child as an object of intimate association. It has no parents. It does not lose its pocket handkerchief. It does not kick or yell. All this we grant those who really study children, those who study any individual must be prepared to take the pains, which I love because I agree with that. That I'm like, if you're studying people, you need to like be there with the people.
0: You, you can't study them the way you might study uh, a pride of lions right. from afar, strictly observing. People are social yes. creatures. You are a fellow person. You are, whether you like it or not, you are a part of their social structure and their community and their experience. And it's kind of like, uh, I don't remember the name of the guy, but it's like the principle of the act of observing inherently changes the outcome. Right. It's. Yeah, You are interacting with these children. And here's the other thing. It's like, is it immoral? Oh, Dory was-
1: I think she yawned. She (laughs) yawned
0: and she's super done with this. Um, But I'm just going to say this. Is it immoral to interact with children, realize you can have a more positive outcome or impact on them and to not do it? Like inherently you're going to have an impact. And how can you look at a child and not react to them? It's impossible for better or for worse they get a reaction out of you right. by existing.
1: So she's also known for her work um, that contributed in small ways toward changing the view toward women that would eventually lead the women to further right to vote, which had obviously long been denied. Unfortunately, due to her like gifted studying, um, that did also help like further eugenics because the eugenics were like, see, look, look at all these gifted people. Yeah, which was not great. But- um, she did um also kind of help figure out like why peep- some people who were normal intelligence were being viewed as like mentally defective and kind of like helped really open the door for more study into that, which is great. Um there is, I guess I don't know if there is, there was at some point an award named for her honor um that was excellence in research and education and psychology. It was called the Hollingworth Award um yeah I don't think it's given out anymore because my notes say like it was given out for over 20 years so I don't think
0: it is anymore well you know it's kind of like um I think there was an award for children's literature named after Laura Ingalls Wilder but because she had some problem she had some problematic views I think around race yeah I I I don't remember I've been drinking um they renamed it to be something more genetic er or Not genetic, fuck.
1: (laughs) Generic. (laughs) Generic.
0: Um, Around like the award for excellence in children's literature. And people were like really mad about it. And I was like, why? It's the same award. It's given for the same reason. But we're we're calling it what it is. Right. And so if they changed the award because she had eugenics eugenics views, I have no problem with Um, that.
1: It sounds like what actually, so as I read my notes a little further, it sounds like, um, who gave out the award change, not the award itself. And then, of course, for people who know psychology or, like, have that basic um, knowledge, um, one of her most famous students was Carl Rogers, who was um, basically the founder of the humanistic approach and really big in child psychology. But, yeah, that was uh, Lita. Like, she did a lot. She really did further research in both women's studies and for gifted children and she didn't have some great views. She was a eugenicist and that's not bad. great. That's bad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. But, but she but, did
1: do a lot. Like no, no, I no. appreciate her research and I mean we do have to look at it as true like like I said eugenics at the time in the 1930s was super prevalent. Almost everyone believed in it and as as she showed in her research, we're kind of a product of the society we're brought up in. I'm not excusing her beliefs because I one thousand percent do not agree with them, and it is not okay to believe that. And we do acknowledge that times are different
0: well i i I'm really glad that you included that because it's kind of like, hey, we can acknowledge Thomas Jefferson's contributions to our country while still acknowledging the facts right that he raped his ensla- he yeah. raped enslaved women like those two things did and continue to exist at the right. same time and hey societally, no one was going to chastise him for that right and i and i think that's also um a really good argument for why society needs to grow and change so people can stu- because it's one thing to change and grow your beliefs you know like um thorndike did yep it's another though for society to give you permission to behave in a certain way right and yeah no i i think that's interesting and i i like the uh the layered view yeah Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist
1: in a private online environment at your convenience.
0: BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, thank goodness. There's a broad range
1: of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the
0: help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours that is amazon fast then you schedule secure video and phone sessions plus you can exchange unlimited messages and everything you share is completely confidential just like with an in-person therapist you can request a new therapist at any time at no additional
1: charges if you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a ten percent off your first month at betterhelpcom Herstory. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot com slash Hurstery. That's what I aim for. Thank All right, you. it's your turn. I've been talking for far too
0: long. Oh my god, this is going to be a long episode. I'm sorry, I've guys. I've been drinking so much. I'm not ready for this. Thankfully, my person is much less problematic. A lot more crazy, and I'm totally here for this. So I just Let's really want to give it. A, I want to give a quick shout out to Karen. I won't say your last name. Uh, they are a Scottish listener from Glasgow, and actually, oh. I think when they first messaged us, um, and, and I looked all this up because I want to be prepared. Um, they wrote to us, "Hello, listener from Glasgow, Scotland. Here, listening to your episodes from the start, and just want to share a weird coincidence. Was listening to your June Almeida, which is episode number fifty-seven. Like that was like right when the pandemic yeah. hit, and we did our our like COVID themed episode. <laughs> um but, but she was the one who like discovered." The structure she discovered, like the structure of covid under a microscope and she dropped out of high school and then became a microbiologist anyway, because fuck everything. So she says uh, your June Almeida one today who was born in Glasgow. My boyfriend works at the Royal Infirmary that she worked at. And when I go home, when I got home, I Googled her. I found out she went to a high school near my house that I was in full caps. Literally walking past (laughs) while listening to the episode. Love the podcast. (laughs) And we love you. We love you. Oh, my fucking God, Karen. Can I come and visit you in Scotland? Because I desperately miss it.
1: I would like to come, too. Um,
0: They also messaged us about, like, we were talking about the Minnesota snowplow names. And they also have, I think they call them, uh, like, grinders or sand trucks or something. Because I don't think their snow is quite Minnesota levels. But they also name them. Um, So, anyway, Karen messaged us. Hello again from Scotland. I've been meaning to message you a woman's suggestion for a while, and I just had a thought of another two. So finally messaging. Thank you. Fucking finally. Always messages. Always. I was
1: waiting, Karen. I was- By the f- by the Instagram messages. With bated breath. Seriously, I almost passed out. It was bad.
0: Um... <laughs> the first is Aloha Wanderwell who was I think the first woman to drive around the world. I'm not going to finish the message because I think Kelly is working on the research for the other person, the other woman she uh covers. So she'll be getting another shout out in a yes. few weeks. Um so gotta she space says space it out. Got
1: to space the love out.
0: Uh I am still traveling through your episode. Think I'm in March 2022 now. <laughs>
1: you're only a year behind karen i'm so sorry
0: for everything you're going to experience
1: <laughs> i'm not i'm not sorry i am i am waiting to hear about the journey
0: hoping you That's gals are doing great. good heart emojis love <laughs> mostly. it mostly um depends depends on on the day. and i message. i i message her back yes 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 thank you for the amazing recommendations aloha wonderful deserves to be covered for her amazing name alone. That's what I was going to say. And today is the fucking day. Let's
1: talk about Aloha.
0: Hello. Aloha Wanderwell, who has just like the, the m- best name. The best name and the most appropriate. So she is Aloha Wonderwell, the world's most widely traveled girl. Which that title might not hold up now that we have like planes and international travel and all that. But anyway, So, special shout out to our Bonnie Lass from Scotland, Karen, proving that uh, hashtag Not All Karens with this incredible suggestion. That's my drunk Scottish brogue. I am sorry.
1: She's she's going to get to to this to apologize to like like, all of Scotland. Scotland,
0: I'm sorry. Lo siento. (laughs) So, believe it or not, Aloha Wanderwell is not her given name. Aloha was born Idris Glacia Welsh in October, th- on October 13th, 1906, October 13th. which here's the thing. That means her birthday multiple times in her life fell on Friday the 13th in October. And I love that spooky energy for her. Fuck yeah. She was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Her widowed mother, Margaret Jane Headley, would later marry a man named Herbert Hall when Idris was about three years old. And Herbert worked on Vancouver Island as a rancher and developer. And Aloha grew up reading Herbert's collection of childhood adventure books that give her a taste for travel and excitement. Like, I'm just imagining it's uh, like Treasure Island. I almost said Treasure Treasure Pan Island
1: Resort and Casino.
0: I almost said Treasure Planet because I'm an I'm a I came of age in the early aughts. Yeah. (laughs) So at the outbreak of World War One in nineteen fourteen, Herbert joined the Canadian Expeditionary Force serving in Europe and rose to the rank of lieutenant in Durham in the Durham Light Infantry. The family followed Herbert to Europe, and as a child, Aloha had the opportunity to travel around England, France, and Belgium, where she was able to attend different boarding schools, and this really only increased her love of travel and adventure because she was getting to experience Mm -hmm. it in this capacity. Tragically, though, uh, Herbert was killed in action in uh, Ypres, Belgium, which is very sad. Aloha was a wild child who could not and refused to be tamed. She wanted travel, adventure, action, and was about to find the perfect opportunity for it all. Aloha earned the nickname Aloha as a child from her hobby...
1: Her her what? for
0: her hobby but it was really it was like her pension for dancing along to ukulele music like on the gramophone Oh my so i like, love her
1: i love her so much i feel
0: like we've all known this kid who just immediately like enters a room and they're like i'm gonna do a dance i'm gonna sing a song watch me do a cartwheel like they're a performer and they want attention on them and this was aloha i will not call her idris through the rest of this story because aloha is just so iconic so she loved movies, especially at, uh, actor Mary Pickford. And she was that kid that she, she was like, I'm going to be a star. I want to I want to entertain. I want to be the, in the spotlight. I, I want to do the things and be out there. And I really like admire that. I um, kind of wish I was like that. Her poor mother, though, that's a very difficult child to parent. <laughs> so enter Walter Wanderwell born valerian johannes i'm sorry Pichinsky. his name was
1: valerian yes why would you ever change that name
0: um there are reasons okay he fine is... But
1: valerian is a great name correct um, i don't care if he's an asshole. i'm sorry but valerian is still a great name no it's a
0: great name it's a polish name um
1: oh, oh you Have Nazis in your story? No, I oh, don't think no, nah, no, I don't. I was like, oh, god damn
0: it, I don't have Nazis in my story. Boy, I'm saying is he definitely Americanized his name uh, for his okay. like later purposes, but he was born Valerian Johannes Paczynski in Poland. We do not claim him, <laughs> we, we do not accept him as one of our own. Um, but Walter was getting. Getting I'm so sorry, I'm so drunk. Um, Walter was getting in on the latest trend of the 1920s, which was making wagers on endurance stunts. Remember like right. Gertrude Etterly and like swimming the, the English Channel yeah. and like how long can a human being run without actually dying? Like this was the rage of the 20s because everyone wow. had nothing but time. The stunt in question was an endurance race around the world between two teams to see which could visit the most countries Walter in his own right is a bit of a trip and that's putting it very nicely I'm just gonna say this right now he's a fucking shyster he's a fucking shyster he's a womanizer he fucks anything that moves like he's not a great guy
1: vagina or anything he's not a great
0: guy well I'm not gonna speak for Walter I'm not going to speak for Mr. Valerian, Johannes Paczynski, okay? Um, but he had been you know, arrested. I'm
1: okay that he changed his name because he would give Valerian a bad name. And I know, Valerian, right? Like, that's a, a great, great name.
0: name. Name your children and your cats Valerian right now. I mean, I'm,
1: so, I'm sure there's been a resurgence of it because there's Valerian Steel in Game of Thrones.
0: Oh, that's where I've heard yeah. of it. I'm like, why is that sounds familiar? My nerd is showing so uh, he had been arrested and jailed in the United States during World War One under suspicion of being a German spy, but he was released in 1918 without charges being brought. Take of that what you will. He was not Aww. charged with anything um, either before or after the spy accusations, he married and began calling himself Captain <laughs> okay. I would, If I had been accused of espionage during World War One, I, I would also want to change my name and like, captain is this very like proud militaristic title so i just he was very much he he was all about his presentation he was all about the hustle and he's an interesting character but he's also a shyster. so that that's just the mindset that okay. i want you to be in so inspired by the newly created league of nations which would later become um oh fuck i didn't write it down i forgot the name The, 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 oh god, what's the national policing conduct? It's not War of the Worlds. United Nations. No. I was like, what are you trying to
1: say? Sorry,
0: League of Nations, which would later become the United Nations.
1: I was like, it's not War of the Worlds. I know what you're talking about. George Orwell? I don't know. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. So very he was inspired by the newly created League of Nations, which was a direct response to World War One, which would later become the United Nations, which is people have opinions. Walter created his own global organization called the Work Around the World Education Club or WAWAC.
1: WAWAC. WAWAC. Okay.
0: I don't think it like held up very well. Now, just four years after avoiding espionage charges, not actually a Captain Wanderwell was putting on an elaborate endurance stunt. Or was it a race? Or was it a peace mission? Advertisements for this whole endeavor build it as everything under the sun. Even he didn't know what the fuck this was as long as he was getting people's attention. So, to attract people to engage in the stunt, Walter placed ads in papers asking that, uh, that read in part, excuse me, quote, brains, beauty, and breeches. World tour offer for lucky young woman. Woman. Looking for, quote, a good-looking, briny young woman willing to forswear skirts and rough it. Wanted to join an expedition across Asia and Africa. Be prepared to learn to work before and behind a movie camera. Camera. So this is, it's oddly specific, but also incredibly vague. It's like, hey. Are you willing, to just kind of? Are you willing? Are you a young woman willing to wear pants and be on camera? Yes, great. So sixteen-year-old Aloha, always. Always. always yes. I mean, I've done way too much would, foot photography I to say to, I'm not. I would
1: love to wear pants and be on camera.
0: <laughs> I have worn pants and been on camera. I have worn nothing and been on camera. Oh, because I'm just that kind of progressive feminist. I'm a nasty woman.
1: I, I helped facilitate that. At least one of the times.
0: Oh, my God. Were you in the dorm room, too? I remember Liz was there. Were you also there when I was getting I my meant, nudes taken? I, no, I
1: meant for, I guess I don't know. I guess we, I, I think, don't know.
0: Crap, I, I think it was, I know Liz was there when I, I don't, first. I
1: think I was on call to be, like, standby because they okay. didn't want too many people in the room. That's right.
0: That's right. Because dorm rooms are smaller Tiny. than prison cells. Anyway, um, but you get Is that the leave. only time
1: you've been on nude on film?
0: Oh, no. Yeah. No, I did all that foot stuff. <sighs> I've also done, like, reference photos, and I did modeling for that tattoo reference, which I yeah, still which haven't seen the tattoo. Yeah, the one tattoo. I
1: facilitated, hey, and Josh. that's the one
0: I was referencing. Hey, Josh. Where's that bitchin' tattoo? All right. Thank you.
1: You mean the anyway. one on my leg?
0: Oh, my God. If you were the person <laughs> who got it, I would no. be- so incredibly but flattered. But the tattoo he did on my
1: leg is bitching.
0: It is bitching. All, yeah. No, all the stuff he's done to you is bitching. Anyway. On you? To you? Doesn't matter. Both? Aloha, <laughs> Wonderwell. Um, okay, so 16-year-old Aloha was reading the Paris Herald at her convent school in France when she spied the ad. I imagine this is like a cartoon where she reads the end, like zips out of the school past the nuns, leaving their habits spinning and like a cloud of dust behind her. So she immediately applied to join the exposition. Expedition, excuse me. I also read she had her mother's permission to do this, which I'm like.
1: I mean, she's how old? She's 16. Yeah, it would make sense that she had her mother's permission. It does not. I mean, it doesn't make sense that her mother gave her permission. I guess it makes sense that she would. Need her mother's permission. See,
0: to me, it also doesn't because a 16-year-old at this time is
1: Yeah, I guess considered, a 16-year-old back
0: then... There are a lot of... Okay, here's the thing. This is really an integral part to Aloha's story and her fame, but good decisions for a 16-year-old were not being made here. Anyway, um, to be fair, if my choices were Covenant School and driving around the world, I would probably pick the latter too. So, this is why we don't let 16-year-olds make life-changing decisions. Right. So, this was actually right up Aloha's alley. She had learned to drive from a, quote, dashing war hero, unquote, when she was 15 and described driving his cherry-red Puget, commenting, quote, how the confines of a car, a reassuring, it's reassuring purr in motion, breeds an extraordinary <laughs> sense of isolation intimacy mm-hmm. i'm like aloha be thirsty <laughs> oh 100 oh my god also what I'm an incredible crazy writer teenage
1: hormones Come i on. couldn't
0: write anything that sexy if i tried i'd just
1: make the noises
0: i would just i would yeah no i wouldn't be able to express myself in words and that's what a, an education creative writing will get you <laughs> In 1922 she met still not a captain Walter Wanderwell in Paris. Not a he was never a captain. Spoiler alert, he never becomes a captain. I
1: don't think he deserves it.
0: He does not. Um so she met him in Paris and was hired as a mechanic and this title was strictly honorary as I couldn't find that she had any mechanical expertise whatsoever. It was probably kind of a big deal that she was able to drive in general um instead aloha was tasked with filming the team's exploits as they traveled around the world in 1917 model t's bonus fun fact one of the model t's was named little lizzie which i just i love that like never trust a lizzie but little lizzie i would i would drive her however aloha was a fucking vision the spunky teen was blonde and six feet tall literally the opposite of me in every fucking way and the camera loved her she soon became the face of the expedition and adopted the name a name appropriate of her adventurous spirit idris hall was no more enter aloha Wanderwell. Now, if you think it's weird that she took Walter's last name when she's 16 and he's married, you're yeah. not alone. Choices, choices. <laughs> this is a
1: decision she made.
0: These are, I mean, I, it's. I'm sure there was like a publicity and like marketing thing behind that, but when you get down to it, it's fucking creepy. And I, and this is not me putting any responsibility on Loha because remember she's 16 years old. So this whole expedition would be like a travel vlog today. Aloha and the team drove around the world recording their exploits on camera, stopping to give paid travel lectures, which helped to cover their expenses. Ooh. Aloha had what the entertainment professionals would call eat factor. I believe that's the technical term. The it factor. And she captivated audiences in lectures and on camera. She was also something like of a novelty at this time as a woman engaging in this activity yep. while wearing jawed purse, a.k.a. pants. Right. Like, they were like, oh, she's so modern. She's this t- She's this six-foot blonde bombshell wearing fucking that's- pants, riding boots, and a military jacket. Right. She was kind she's of this... hot. Well, she's this... Perfect blend of traditional feminine qualities, but also dipping into the masculine realm.
1: Right. Which is probably. a pants. Right. And it's enough for that notice. Like that's. Yes. Like she's gorgeous and she's defying standards. So it's like.
0: She's quite a sight. That's why it's the it factor. Newspapers covered the adventures of their new favorite media darling, dubbing her, quote, the Amelia Earhart of the open road. She wasn't just a star in front of the camera, but also operated the camera and directed films, eleven of which are in the Library of Congress. She's kind of a big deal. According to Mike Mashin, uh, the curator of the Library of Congress moving image section, quote, she was a true independent filmmaker. She created and distributed her own films, presenting them to on the lecture circuit, continually re-editing them throughout her career. Hmm. So, like, she really was. She was like an indie. She was kind of an indie darling, except she broke into the mainstream. She was like Gautier for that, like, one song. (laughs) Somebody that I used to know. The first leg of the journey, which lasted from 1922 to 1925, Aloha drove one of the expedition's cars from Nice, France, across Europe and through Asia from Mumbai to Kolkata, and then up to China before entering the USSR, as it was known at the time. Now we call it Russia. Uh, And in arriving in Vladivostok, oh shit, I should have put the phonetic pronunciation. Vladivostok. Vladivostok. There we go. In 1924. So impressed by her, the Russians were that the Soviet army named her an honorary colonel for being, quote, being the first democel to pilot a motor car in Siberia. Here's the funny thing. A motor car in Siberia. She's officially dubbed a colonel by an entire country's army. But Captain Wanderwell is still not a fucking captain in any way, shape, or form. I
1: love that. He's probably super bitter about that.
0: Oh, my God. I don't
1: give a shit.
0: Uh, So the next leg of the journey would take her from Cape Town to Cairo, and she would improvise when needed using kerosene as fuel, grease the car gears with bananas, which I don't know if I would recommend on modern cars, but for the time, it was really clever and she used a combination of water and elephant fat in place of engine oil because she's driving on non-existent roads like she's driving through rough terrain there's no 7-eleven there's no quick trip and she just has to improvise with what's available which apparently are bananas and elephant fats sounds
1: strange I don't know, he said bananas, and I was like, like Josephine Baker. And then he said elephant fat, and I'm like, She ran to Josephine
0: Baker and was like, can I take a couple of bananas off your screen? Josephine Baker was like, yas, queen. Yas. Yas. Um, So during her trip around the world, Aloha traveled across six continents, often on unpaved roads, clocking 380,000 miles. Then things got weird. During the second leg of the journey in 1926, the now 19 or 20-year-old Aloha married not a actual Captain Walter Wanderwell. Where did his wife go? I have no fucking idea. She's probably
1: like, you know what? If you want him, you can have him. She's like, he is a jackass.
0: Deuces.
1: Right,
0: exactly. She's like, oh, "Oh, thank thank God. God." He's not my problem. Fucking get out of here. You potential spy, shyster piece of shit. Um, I also read that they, that they got married on April 7th of 1925 as a way of getting around the Mann Act in the United States, which, states, which made it illegal to transport women across straight lines. I'm just going to lean into the slurs. Or the, the, the slurring. Not yeah. the slurs. I'm so sorry. I was like, uh, <laughs> these are hard. Me. The slurring, because this is who I am now. Uh, for, quote, immoral purposes, which at this time could be pretty much anything. So if they were married, the man couldn't touch them. So it was kind of like, I I feel like it was a combination of both. Here's the thing. She is 19 or 20 at this time. So she is legally an adult, but she's been traveling with this guy around the world since she was 16 years old. She took his last name. And I just, I don't trust him. Right, like, I mm, at your best, soup's creepy. At best, he's creepy. At worst, he's a straight up predator and I hate him. Um, but the, the, like whether or not this was purely pragmatic or even creepier, it's still creepy. Like yeah. I don't care the, which way you slice it. Um, it's also possible that the reason for their marriage was even more practical than avoiding the law. Because in December of 1925, remember they were married around April 7th, 1925, Aloha gave birth to her daughter Valerie, and she would later have a son, Niall, in 1927. Presumably, they were Walter's children. So again, there's there's just so much like vague creepiness around that where I'm like, Yeah, tell me it was purely innocent and that this guy was not taking advantage of a young woman. So not long after having a child, Aloha was back on the road, traveling across 43 countries throughout Africa. And during this trip, Aloha allegedly cut her hair short and fought as a member of the French Foreign Legion? So my herstory headcanon is that she knew Brendan Fraser from the Mummy movies and they fought alongside and maybe she saved his life. I don't know. Who knows? Who? Kn- who's to say? <laughs> <laughs> who's to say? Upon returning to the United States in 1929, Aloha and the Captain settled in Miami and prepared for the premiere of their film, Caught in Camera Around the World. I don't know what that accent was. Documenting their travels, but they didn't stay long. No sooner had they come to the United States, the couple were off on an expedition to Brazil in 1931 with the goal of searching for a famous explorer who had vanished while searching for the legendary City of Z. Or for our British listeners, the City of Zed. Look how inclusive City I am. I did not look into it. I think I was it's like,
1: is this on par with like... Um, El Dorado? El- yeah.
0: I think so. I think it's like one of those like ancient lost cities that probably has a bunch of gold, but there was an explorer who went famously went missing while searching for the city. And so they went searching for the explorer and therefore the city. Um, surprise, surprise. They find they found neither. <laughs> um, they, but they filmed their adventure, which would become a movie called river of death. Cause they know dun, what dun, I want. Dun. Yeah. They they're all for the drama and they know what I'm going to click on Hulu. Unsurprisingly. By, based on everything we have said, the marriage between Aloha and the captain wasn't a happy one. After their expedition to Brazil, the couple settled in Los Angeles, but they did not live together. And here's the thing. I'm not saying that like choosing not to live together is the sign of an unhealthy marriage. They had an unhealthy marriage. Period. <laughs> Period. Full stop. And a symptom of that was that they would not live together. Yeah. Aloha lived in... Uh, downtown LA and spent much of her time editing River of Death while the captain lived on a schooner named Karma with a C um, that's poetic and we're going to find out why uh, so he had plans to restore it and sail to, to Tahiti because he's just always on the move in the meantime it seems he made money by contracting out the boat for tours or small trips mm. and then on one foggy night On December 5th, 1932, the captain was preparing karma for a voyage. His children were sleeping sleeping on the boat, and a group of passengers stood on the deck waiting to shove off. Suddenly, out of the fog, emerged a man in a long gray coat, and he boarded the schooner and asked the passengers where the captain was. Thinking nothing of it, they directed the stranger into the captain's map room.
1: The map.
0: room. The map room.
1: Not the like control area. The map room. Yeah, because he's like
0: charting out their trips. It's, 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 it's very dramatic these days. It's. Well, okay. here's the thing. They totally have map rooms nowadays, but this just feels very dramatic the and old timey. Shortly after the man disappeared below deck, the passengers were startled by the sound of gunshots. The captain had been shot in the back and was found slumped over dead. Now, here's the trick. The list of people who may have wanted to murder the captain was so long that it seemed it could be anyone because he had lied to people. He had cheated to people. He had slept with men's wives. He had stepped out on other women. He's
1: not a captain asshat.
0: He's, He's not living... A very virtuous, le- and here's the thing: I'm not, I'm not trying to like slut shame him or anything, but he is pissing off people left, right, and center. So, as Randolph Eustace Walden, who co-wrote a biography on Aloha, said, "quote." The list of possible killers with a motive would have made Agatha Christie's head spin. It could have included husbands, boyfriends, jilted women, jilted business partners, an agent of a foreign power, rogue police, and Aloha herself. Because remember, he's not a great husband. Though a disgruntled employee who had worked alongside Aloha and the captain in South America um, and attempted a mutiny while he was working for them, he was tried for the murder, but he was acquitted. And the murder of Walter, the captain, Wanderwell, is officially unsolved. And. I. So, OK, so maybe this is bias. I personally don't think Aloha was the one who murdered him or would he be, have even ordered a hit out on him. Because her children seem like it. Here's the thing. Her children were sleeping on that boat that he was murdered on. That's dark. Like, like, can like I don't think it was her because witnesses stayed it was like a man in a long coat. But also, would you would you send someone to kill your husband while your own children are sleeping on the boat? Maybe. I I doubt it, though. There were so many other people who wanted him dead and had the means, the motives, and the opportunity. So it's hard to know what Aloha's personal feelings about her estranged husband being murdered were. But I will say she wasn't too upset to use the publicity over his murder to promote their movie River of Death. The name of which feels all the more poignant. So, like, all this publicity is going around about him being murdered. And she's like, oh, hey, you want to see his last movie? Like, let's promote this movie. So, at best, I think she was incredibly apathetic apathetic right. towards him.
1: Right. Like, I don't think she was murderous. I think she was yeah. just like, I'm fucking done.
0: Exactly. And, and there's nothing else in her history that would suggest that she was murderous. Not that, like, someone with, like, and I don't like this term, but, like, um, Oh, battered spouse syndrome, Mm -hmm. you know, couldn't kill their abuser and be and like never kill again, but it just it feels very unlikely. Yeah. So Aloha would later meet and marry her second husband, a gas station attendant named Walter Baker. Another, but very different Walter. (laughs) You don't have to worry about saying the wrong name in bed. Aloha continued her travels taking the new Walter with her to India, Australia, Cambodia, Indochina, and most exotic of all, Wyoming. Oh what? The first
1: state to legalize women's right to vote. Yeah, that would go. I mean there definitely too.
0: A, it's worth visiting. So she continued to I mean, make wasn't movies. wasn't that
1: because they were like we're not fucking joining you unless you continue letting our women be able to vote.
0: That's exactly it. Yes, 100%. Good history knowledge. Look at us learning from this podcast. I know things. So throughout these travels, she continued making movies of her travels all throughout the 1930s. Aloha knew Walter would stay together for 62 years until his death in 1995. So I really like to think like she was very, she seemed very happy with this person. And that makes me happy. For the remainder of her life, Aloha made movies of her travels and went on lecture tours, recalling her marvelous adventures, like the time she was surrounded by five herds of elephants and had to shoot her way out. Which is, again, like, it feels, so much of this feels like a cartoon. It's so dramatic. Um... And her encounter with Desert Dust, a famous Mm -hmm. Palomino wild horse, which she caught on camera. And this is the only known footage of this famous horse. Like, she's the only reason we know this horse actually existed. And it apparently was like a local legend. I didn't look into Desert Dust very much because I'm not a horse girl. Horses scare me. They might murder me.
1: All right, let's just keep moving. I didn't know that. I love horses. Here's the thing. It's funny. I'm more afraid horses. of like cows than I am of horses. I for am the afraid same of bulls. I am. That people terrified are terrified yeah, of bulls. It's because they can
0: kick you and you're dead. Exactly. A horse took down Superman. <laughs> what? Yes. Um, is it Keith? Ri- not Keith Richards. Fuck. Who played Superman? Okay, Google that really quick. But but the guy who originally played Superman in the movies, he got kicked by a horse, and was like, "I think he became a quadriplegic or a paraplegic." It's not Keith. Richards. Christopher Reeves. Christopher Reeves. See, I've got the C and the R. I've got the initials like I normally do. <laughs> Just none of the All stuff right, in between that story. matters. Aloha gave her final performance at the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles in 1982. 150 family members and guests were in attendance. She died on July 4th, 1996 at the ripe old age of 89 years old. Legacy.
1: Also, he fell off of his horse. His horse did not kick
0: him. I still blame the horse. Okay? It's the horse's fault. The horse just hates Superman. The horse is a Marvel fan. Yeah, <laughs> the horse really does not like DC comics. Yeah, one hundred percent. So some of Aloha's movies are held at the Academy Film Archive in the Aloha Wonderwell Baker Film Collection. Ooh. Um, and also as I mentioned, she's in the Library of Congress. Like her films yeah, are in I there. Remember that. Aloha broke barriers for women in the areas of travel, adventure, filmmaking, clothing, driving, and everything like everything she did defied standard gender roles and really and here's the thing i don't want to dismiss walt the captain's Fuck. influence on her on her notoriety his part in her story But she really paved her own way. And I feel like she really found herself in these travels and was able to craft the version of herself she wanted. Yeah. Especially after she was no longer married to the captain.
1: Especially.
0: So that is the story of Aloha Wanderwell, also known as the world's most widely traveled girl. Hmm. So Kelly, this has almost been two hours. What are you thankful for?
1: I am thankful for my colleagues and them being incredibly supportive. What are you thankful for?
0: I'm super thankful. Okay, so the gym I go to um, appeals to uh, an older demographic because it's also the replacement for our local senior center. And whenever I know that
1: part, but oh uh, yeah, I can see that.
0: Yeah, I mean it's open to everyone, but that was kind of one of the original intentions of it. Um, So I'm very thankful for the older gals who I encounter in the locker room because they always tell me my dresses are cute and that I smell nice. And, and I and like, they're always they're always just so nice and sweet. And I'm like, well, you all be my grandma. I love you. Mm. But yeah, I don't know. It's nice. It's just any kind of positivity you can get from a stranger is very nice because it's so often not the case. Thank you so much for listening to another super long episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Instagram at wahpod, Facebook at Whining About Herstory.
1: Twitter at WH underscore pod. Our website is WineAbutterStory.com where you can find our merch, our Patreon. You can find everything. You can buy us a glass of wine slash coffee. Literally. Just check us out. Give us a five-star review wherever you listen.
0: Send us recommendations. Be that Karen. Be the Karen. Be
1: the Glasgow
0: Karen. The Glasgow Karen. Hashtag not all Karens hashtag not this Karen yeah there you go not (laughs) Not Scottish Karens I wonder if Scots have like a different version of Karen or if that's become kind of like a western
1: Karen do you have a name for women other than derogatory names like an actual traditional name for like women that ask to see the manager and are really uptight and things like that or
0: call police on black people for existing Yeah. yeah Or we is want it to just know. us? We want to know. We well, Scottish culture. All,
1: not even just Scottish. Like other cultures in general. Do you have like other names for those women? What here does they, your they're
0: Karen. Karen look like? Paint us a picture. Please tell us. We love you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily and I have to pee. I'm Kelly and I also
1: have to pee. I was literally about to say that. We're going
0: to piss our pants. Bye. Bye! Bye! Have an number Don't piss your pants. Or do.